interning here for a year and a half, and every four months or so, or three months, three, I don't know, four times a year, so I guess three months, um, I get the opportunity to preach on Sunday, so I'm glad to do that today. Um, today I'll be talking about work and rest, uh, but before we get there, uh, let's just pray real quick, and then we'll begin. Father, thanks for the stay. Thanks for... Um, just an awesome opportunity to gather for the new year, God. Um, God, I pray that this new year would be a good one, where we would come to know you more, come to love you more. Um, and at the end of this year, we would look back and we would be able to say, um, God, you are amazing, and I know you more now, and I, 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 I care for the world more now, and I care for my community more now, and I care for my family more now, and um, I just pray that that change would happen, God, in whatever way. God, want to give you permission, whatever way that would happen, I pray that that would happen. I pray that you would change hearts um, in our church this year, that you would use our church to impact our community this year. Um, first and foremost, that you would mold mold us and shape us um, this year. In the place of the name, amen. I read this ESPN article recently on Michael Jordan. Anyone never heard of Michael Jordan? Okay. Make sure. So Michael Jordan, right, he's perhaps the greatest basketball player who ever lived. And um, he retired in 2003 for the third time. You know, great players, they always have to retire multiple times. So that's what he did. And uh, since then, I don't know if you know too much about since uh, what happened since he retired. But since then, he's uh, become a, quite a businessman. He's owned, he now owns seven restaurants. He owns a car dealership. He, he owns 80% of the Charlotte Bobcats, right, in the NBA. And uh, all of these businesses, and he, and he owns the brand uh, Air Jordan shoe brand, right? All of these rack in an estimated $90 million a year for him, which is more than he made when he actually was playing basketball, okay? Um, I think he peaked at around $30 million or something when he was playing basketball, so not, not very much. But However, I was reading this article and talked about his nostalgia and frustration with life about how he spends a lot of his time watching Western movies and playing Bejeweled on his iPad. For real, this is Michael Jordan, okay? That's what he does. And, and this, is, this is what he says, quote, I like reminiscing. I do it more now watching basketball than anything. Man, I wish I was playing right now. I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. And the article goes on and says, the self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. He's restless. So Michael Jordan, he hasn't been playing for over 10 years now, right? 2003, uh, 12 years, I guess. But there's a huge part of his life that still feels connected to the sport. He feels somehow misplaced. Or he feels somehow aimless. And he doesn't feel complete without his work. Even after becoming, he's a five-time MVP, a six-time NBA champion, right? He somehow cannot rest. He isn't satisfied. He wants to keep playing, keep competing. He's 51 now. And some of you, you might hear this and, and you might think, well, that's perfectly normal. I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. I would probably do the same thing. Well, I want to suggest there is something that is very subtly wrong with what Michael Jordan is doing. And, and it's not just him. I think it's all of the Western world. 
right? There is this, there's a system in place that runs against God's original system in our lives. And that's kind of what I want to unpack for us today, that God designed us as human beings to participate and work and rest in a, in a specific way. And most of us naturally don't operate that way for different reasons. So, so what way am I talking about? The Bible uses this word Sabbath. And, um, and maybe some of you have heard that word before. Even, even non-Christians, sometimes they, they, they're familiar with that word. They may have certain connotations when they think about that word. But Sabbath, is, in Hebrew, it literally means rest. And at the core of this biblical command to observe the Sabbath is to simply rest. Now, some of you, got, some of you might hear that and you go, oh, if that's the case, I already take a Sabbath. You see, I, I work five days a week and I rest two days a week, right? So that's my Sabbath. And some of you guys, you know, you're busy, so you say, I work five days a week and I... Uh, I run errands on Saturdays, and I, I watch football on Sundays. So watching football on Sundays, that's my rest, right? And, and by the way, anybody see the, the Ravens game yesterday? That's right. That's right. Okay. I, I never really was a football fan until kind of the past two years living in Baltimore. So I would have been a Niners fan growing up, but not anymore. Kind, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can give them up. But anyways, is, is that what a Sabbath really is, right? Just watching football on Sundays. When, when God created the world and he said, I'm going to make a Sabbath, did he, inve- did he envision people just watching people run around on fields wearing helmets, right? Is, was, that his, was that his ideal vision for the Sabbath? And I'm not saying football is bad. I think football is awesome. But I think understanding the Sabbath can help us to grasp how we as divinely created human beings can work and rest. Okay, so today we'll be flipping through the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, you can take them out. There's some in the pews in front of you. But um, we'll be going through a lot of passages. So uh, it's, and, and when I was a kid growing up, we called these sword drills, right? The Bible's your sword. And so sword drills, you just name a random passage and you flip through and you try to get there as fast as you can and you read it out. So that's what we did as kids. Okay, so that's that's how I came to be the person I am today, right? I'm, I'm a little nerdy and stuff. But that's what we did. So we'll, we'll be doing a little bit of that. But if you don't want to participate in the sword drills, you can uh, look on the screen too. So the first one we'll go to is Exodus chapter 20. Um, if you have a pew Bible, that's page 53. If you don't have a pew Bible, I can't help you with the page number. But Exodus chapter 20, this is the Ten Commandments, okay? Um, Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, God gave them to Moses uh, to give them to his people shortly after they came out of Egypt. Okay, so we're going to read not all of them, just number four, because that's the one that's relevant to us. Commandment number four, it starts in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within, the, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there's a lot of people who, and, and animals, who can't do work, right? But that's, that's the nature of the Sabbath day. And, and I've always felt... Um, Growing up, even when I learned about this, the fourth commandment seemed a little out of place. You know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, all of them, some of them, they make sense, even to non-Christians, right? Uh, even to atheists, they make sense. Like, do not murder, okay, makes sense. Do not commit adultery, okay, makes sense, right? But remembering the Sabbath day, that's one of those commandments that, that you know, it, it's, a, it's kind of weird, at least, at least to a lot of people, right? It's a little weird. Why would you do something like that? As in... 
uh, do we are we working too much? So does God want to give us a break or something? Does that is that what the Sabbath is about? Um, give me a break. That sounds like a Kit Kat bar commercial, right? But does it does it really belong in the Ten Commandments, right? And, and I think if we read the passage closely, we can kind of discover a little bit why this is here. In verse eleven, it talks about the creation account, and I think the word for in verse eleven shows that uh, there's a tie between this creation account and the Sabbath day commandment. Right? This, this word for shows that the reason for our Sabbath is tied with God's creation. Okay, so why must we work six days and rest one, way, rest one day? Because that's what God did when he created the world. So it, let's now look to our next passage, which is the story of creation in Genesis chapter 2. In order to understand the Sabbath, we need to understand creation. Now, if you grew up in the church, um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's easy sometimes to normalize uh, what seems initially strange or off-putting in the Bible, right? Sometimes we read the Bible, it seems kind of weird, and we church people, we, we, we like to normalize it in order to make it, more, make, make it make sense to us, right? And it's sad because sometimes those strange off-putting things are, are there for a purpose, and those strange off-putting things are what we fail to understand usually. And I think the creation story is one of those initially weird but eventually kind of normalized passages. And the first few times, because the first few times when I read the story of God's creation, um, I, I, I don't remember, but I would imagine I'd probably be pretty confused when I came to the seventh day. Essentially, why did God rest? Right? Why did God rest? Most people, when they rest, it's because they're tired. Okay? But we can't put that logic on God because then can we say, did God get tired, right? If God gets tired, then he's not the powerful God we make him out to be. So, so we, let's explore that a little bit. Um, but before we start reading this passage in Genesis 2, uh, if we scan through Genesis 1, you'll see that there are two phrases repeated over and over, right? They appear at the end of every day. The first is, God saw that it was good. And the second phrase is, and there was evening and there was morning. Okay, and, and the only exception is day six, after creating the human beings, instead of saying God saw that it was good, it says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And then it gives the evening and morning thing. So let, let's just start from Genesis 131, and let's read this, just uh, read till chapter 2, verse 3. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So why did God rest? Right? Was it because he was tired? Or maybe he just retired? Right? You know, tired and retired, right? Or, or maybe he, he just, you know, didn't have as much imagination anymore. He just ran out of ideas, didn't know what to create anymore, right? Notice, nowhere in this passage does it suggest any of those things, right? In this context, we have, to we have to read the clues that we have. So what do we have? We have, you know, it says over and over again that God finished his work, right? He, he, he enjoyed his work, right? It, he saw and it was very good. And, and there's, no, no, there's also no evening and morning situation, right? I think the evening and morning shows that there was development. There was process going on in the creation. And now... The creation had finished being created, right? So I think God wasn't gaining energy so that he could go back to work again because he didn't go back to work again. He actually finished creating. 
God rested because he had finished his work, and he saw that it was very good. There was no more need to improve on what he already created, so he stopped creating. Another way to say that he was fully delighted and satisfied with his creation. He was able to enjoy the fruits of his labor. So this kind of resting is radically different from the way most people rest. The way most people rest is they think, okay, I have work to do. That's my goal. Okay, in order to do better work, I need to rest to recharge so I can do better work. Okay? God doesn't do that. He, he already finished his work, and then he just stops working. Okay? So what does that have to do with us? Well, when God created the world and rested, he instilled a value system into the world, into the fabric of this world. And that was that. At some point, work needs to be completed. And then rest takes place. There needs to be a designated time in which those who have worked will stop working and they'll, stop, and they'll delight in the fruits of their labor. And the Sabbath law was designed to reflect that value system. It was intended to mirror that value system that God had to the rest of the world. It, it, that work needs to stop, work needs to be interrupted for the designated times of delight and satisfaction. You can say Sabbath mirrors the rhythm of God. And, and it's a bold declaration, right? It's saying, I am satisfied with my work. I am delighted in my work. I am content, and I don't have to keep going. I don't have to improve. I'll, I'm okay. But then the fall happened. The fall was when Adam and Eve first sinned. And, and when that happened, it's, it's not that, you know, humans just started doing bad things. All of creation usually had a perfect system, and then it slowly started to fall apart. Because of the fall, it started to fall apart. Marriage and family fell apart. R racial relations fell apart. Our perception of beauty fell apart. And in our context, the concept of work fell apart. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 3, which is, if you save your spot, just the next page over. Um, Genesis chapter 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So after the fall, God gave a series of curses that were natural consequences of the fall. And this is one of those curses. Now, it's important to remember here, work is not inherently bad. Okay, work is not inherently bad. How do we know? Because before the fall, God worked. Right? It says God finished his work. Creation was a work. And also before the fall, God gave Adam and Eve the work of caring for creation. So work is not bad. Work is actually potentially a good thing. But after the fall, work became tainted. After the fall, work became tainted. And and the passage we read shows that because of sin, work is now painful and difficult, right? There's thorns and thistles. There's sweat now. Work is now painful and difficult. And out of that comes feelings of inadequacy, feelings of stress, feelings of anxiety, feelings of futility, feelings of restlessness. All of those things, which are consequences not of work, but of the fall, they appeared after sin came into the world. They are a result of sin. And so, you know, maybe some of you have ever felt fallen short of a goal. You, you had this goal in mind, and you utterly fell short. 
or maybe maybe it's taking a test, or maybe it's trying to get a promotion, maybe it's trying to get someone's approval, and you just fall flat on your face, right? I've been there, okay? And when you know that feeling when you feel like you've tried super hard at something, right? It might be a job or a relationship, or maybe even a video game, and that you, for hours and hours, or maybe years, and then you just look back and go, that was such a total waste. Why did I even put that effort in? Right? Or maybe it's a feeling of, you know, you look at your calendar and you're stressing out. You just, you're busy all the time and you're always feeling behind on everything. You don't know, you, you just sometimes, you know, you just wake up in the morning and you just, or maybe you're, you can't go to sleep at night, right? Because you're thinking about all the things you have to do. You're just feeling restless. All of those feelings come from the fall. They didn't exist in God's original created order. In God's original creator order of work and rest, those feelings didn't exist. And not only did work become tainted, but rest also became tainted. And what I mean is, it's God's creation, uh, the, the God's creative rest, his form of rest, originally when, when he created it, when he created the world, that rest was now lost to humanity. You know, that feeling of completing your work and just delighting in what you've done not having to move on or improve, just, just feeling satisfied and totally content, right? That's now a very rare experience. Instead of that, we have discontentment. And discontentment drives many of us to do the things that we do, right? It's this idea that no matter what we've done, no matter what we have, no matter who we are, it's never enough. It's never enough. We're always trying to get to the next big thing. It might be the next paycheck. It might be the next phone. It might be the next relationship. Whatever it is, we find ourselves chasing that next thing. We manipulate situations to get that next thing. And though it's not wrong to strive for good things, that's good to strive for good things. It's wrong to do it at the expense of never enjoying what you already have. At the expense of never delighting what you have. So if you have clothes that you don't like, if you have gadgets you don't like, and you want something better, that's not wrong, but... If after you get that something better, pretty soon you want something else, and it keeps happening over and over, it shows that the actual thing was never the issue. The heart was always the issue. Right? If you're always chasing thing after thing after thing, those things aren't messed up. They're not broken. Those are perfectly good things. It's the heart that's the issue. And that's an issue that can be traced back to the fall. But thankfully, God didn't leave us at the fall. So let's go to the next passage. This is Deuteronomy 5. Uh, verses 12 through 15, back to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. This is God talking to the Israelites again. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall, do not, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant or your female servant may rest as well as you're pretty familiar, right? You shall, rem this is different though, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, so here, this is something interesting. In the first passage that we read, it's kind of in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it says, why do you keep the Sabbath day? Because that's what God did when he created the world. And now, God points to another point in time, rescue from Egypt. In verse 15, it recounts how the Israelites were rescued. And then it says, therefore, God commands you to keep the Sabbath. Okay, so how does God rescuing the Israelites from slavery relate to 
the Israelites keeping the Sabbath? How are they connected? Well, if you read this, so here's where the nerdy part comes out, okay? So if you read this passage in Hebrew, it might make a little more sense because, interestingly enough, the word labor in verse 13 where it says six days you shall labor, that word, and the word slave in verse 15 where it says, you know, you were a slave in Egypt, they actually have the same root word in Hebrew. And actually, if you, if you track the Bible, whenever it talks about the idea of six days you shall labor, Sabbath, almost all the time when it talks about the Sabbath and resting from your work, that work is almost always the same word as slavery in Egypt. Okay, that same word. And so the context is Israel, they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Okay, that's a long time. Okay, 400 years ago, that was, you know, that's... That was Pocahontas and stuff going on. That, that, was, that was that, okay? So that's a long time. So, so do you, and so God is saying, okay, do you remember how you used to work as a slave all the time? Okay, of course you do. That was your whole life. Don't do that, okay? Don't work all the time. Rest, right? But imagine, imagine what it must be like, okay? If you, if you were a slave, if your parents were slaves, your grandparents were slaves, like all, that's all you knew. All you knew was work and slavery, Right? And God is saying, stop working. Rest. Okay? And, and if that happens, in a weird way, freedom will seem kind of unnatural. Freedom will seem kind of unnatural. And even if God sets the Israelites free, there will still remain a slave-like tendency inside of them. Because slavery is all they ever knew. That's why, if you're familiar with the story, there are passages where they're hungry in the desert, they're complaining, and and it's not the perfect life, but it's still pretty good. They want to go back to Egypt. They said it was so much better in Egypt when we were slaves because that's all they knew. There's a scene at the end of Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption is one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, I want to spoil a little bit of the ending. But there's a scene where Red, he's Morgan Freeman at the end of the movie. He's been in prison for 30 years. He finally gets released. And now he gets this job bagging groceries he sees a store manager, and he goes, sir, restroom break. And then the store manager come, calls him over, and he says, you don't need to ask me every time you go. Just go. Understand? And, and then he's walking to the restroom. You have his voiceover, right? It's really awesome when you have the Morgan Freeman voiceover. But, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't know if it's clean enough. But he says something like, 30 years I've been asking permission. I can't go without permission. Right? You see, Red had been living with these rules for 30 years. For so long, he didn't know how to handle not having those rules. And similarly, the Israelites, they had been working so long, they didn't know how not to work. Because you can take people out of slavery, but it's another thing altogether to take slavery out of the people. Right? You can take people out of slavery, but it's another thing altogether to take the slavery out of people. For us, it's the same way. The reality is many of us are slaves to our work. How can you tell if you're a slave to your work? simple test is to ask yourself, how good are you at doing absolutely nothing? How good are you doing absolutely nothing? So, so if, meaning like you just sit there and you're not productive, you're idle, okay? You're not accomplishing anything, Right? If that thought freaks you out, freaks me out a little bit, there's a chance you might be a slave to your work. And I'm not just talking about workaholism in careers, okay? I'm not talking about where you make your income. That's, that's part of it, though. I'm talking about anything. It can, be, it can be running errands. It can be meeting up with people. It might be playing video games. It might be drinking. It might be a lot of things. It, it, it's just this idea of 
whenever you have some time, what do you default to doing? What do you find yourself doing whenever you have any free time? What is it for you? Right? Because the activity that we default to often is where our hearts lie. Whatever it is, that activity controls part of your life. And that is, in a sense, your slave master. For me, you know, and there's a lot of things. I don't, I don't want to list them all. But looking at basketball highlights, okay, that's one of the things that, you know, when I, whenever I'm at home and, and I go, I have some free time, what do I do? I want to look at some basketball highlights. Okay, I finished today. Okay, I want to look at yesterday. Okay, finished yesterday. I'm going to look at the two days before. Okay, I want to look at the top ten assists of the week. Okay, I want to look at uh, – like, like this one-hour clip of Allen Iverson career highlights. Okay, I, that's just what I do, okay? Or sometimes I play dumb games on my phone. Why? Because I have a slavery tendency. I don't have to do those things, but I do. That's what I default to because I can't be idle. It's, I'm a victim of the fall, and I'm a perpetrator of sin. So what can we do about it? One thing for sure is we can't be legalistic about it. You know, one time a few years ago I was talking to this Orthodox Jew, and Orthodox Jews, they, they keep the Sabbath pretty strictly. They have these regulations about what's work, what's not work. And, you know, one of the things that was established a long time ago is that starting a fire is considered work. Okay, so some Orthodox Jews, they never get into cars uh, on the Sabbath day. And this guy I was talking to, he said he got around it by putting dirt in his shoes every time he got into a car because he was saying if he put dirt in his shoes, then his physical location wasn't in the car, but it was in the dirt in the shoes. So that's, that's what I, I didn't want to argue with him. I didn't really understand the rules very much, but that's what he said, okay? But so I, I would say that's a legalistic way of understanding the Sabbath, but I think if we want to live out the Sabbath in our lives, it, it can't be legalistic because at the core of the Sabbath is not legalism, but it's a heart of delight, satisfaction, contentment, and that's not something that legalism can fix, right? And so it, it's, I encourage you to seriously ask yourself, right, if it's about contentment, delight, you know, freedom. What ways, in what ways are you not content? In what ways are you not delighted? In what ways do you not feel free? In what ways do you feel enslaved? And, and just ask yourself those questions, identify those areas, and then ask, how can you redirect your heart so that you can experience true contentment, true liberation, true rest? What are some steps you can take? For some, it might be, you know, practically setting aside time, right? Yeah, if, if you use a Google Calendar, put a slot there, set it aside, and you can use it to meditate on the Bible, pray, right? Uh, it, you know, I, I would imagine few of us would say something like, you know, I feel bored all the time, and I just have too much time, and I need something to do. Most of us wouldn't say something like that, right? Most of us would feel this conflict of, yeah, I know, reading the Bible, praying, yeah, setting aside time, that's good, I understand, but I just don't have enough time, right? Most of us are in there, but I want to suggest to you that the less time you feel you have, the more time you need to be spending with God. The less time you feel you have, the more time you need to be spending with God, because this issue of not having, not feeling like you have enough time, that feeling comes out of a hard condition. That's not, that feeling doesn't come from your schedule, ultimately, that feeling comes from a heart condition. And that heart condition is only addressed by spending time with God. Because true Sabbath is being in a state of rest where this idea of I don't have enough time, it doesn't even exist. Right? When God created the world in six days and you rest on the seventh, 
right? He wasn't thinking, you know what, I don't have enough time. He had time. That's why he rested. But most likely, if you're in this room, you, you probably already have some of these convictions. You have a desire to learn and grow spiritually. And I would imagine, you know, like Pastor Dan mentioned, these New Year's resolutions, you know, one of the, among Christians, one of the popular New Year's resolutions is to read the Bible in a year or something like that. And, you know, I've tried that and failed that uh, several times, right? And, and, and maybe that's you, right? Um, and if that's you, maybe you can have, you know, come up with a new system. There are systems out there and reading the Bible and praying. And it might be just, you know, writing prayer requests on flashcards. If you use flashcards, I don't know if you use flashcards. It might be notifications on your phone. It might be email reminders. It might just be asking a friend, hey, I'm struggling with reading the Bible. Are you struggling with reading the Bible? Oh, you are too. Okay. Can we meet every week, even over webcam? Can we webcam every week to read the Bible? Just something like that. And for others, maybe you already spend time praying and reading the Bible, but you still feel discontent. You still feel enslaved. You can try other things too. It, might, it can be more than Sabbath isn't just reading the Bible and praying. It can be other things. It can be committing to volunteering once a week. Why? Because simply putting yourself in a position where you're serving the needs of others enables you to see less of your own needs. If you're serving the needs of others, you're not as focused on your own needs, and you, you might not be as discontent because you're not focused on your own needs as much. Or maybe it's shutting off your Internet once a week. Shutting off your internet once a week. Just putting in some sort of practical barrier, a barrier that prevents you from working. Or maybe it's getting involved. This, is, this, might, be, this might sound dumb, but I think I haven't tried this, but I might try this. It might be in getting yourself involved in something you're absolutely horrible at. Okay? Getting yourself involved in something you're absolutely horrible at because if you get used to the idea that it's okay not to be good at something, you can, you know, you can just enjoy something and not have to be good at it. Right? It might be helpful. But at the end of the day, methods can only take us so far. Because ultimately, like I said before, it's a heart condition. And at the core of the issue, we need a heart change. We need a heart change. We need to move from discontentment to contentment. From dissatisfaction to satisfaction. From restlessness to rest. And to do that, we need to go to Jesus. Ultimately, how do we keep the Sabbath? By turning to Jesus, whom the Bible calls the Lord of the Sabbath. God, sorry, Jesus demonstrated work and rest in a way that aligned with God's original design. Ever since the fall, nobody lived work and rest the way God did until Jesus came. Jesus never experienced discontentment. He never experienced inadequacy. He never experienced the self-imposed slavery but he was more than an example because examples can't change hearts. Jesus was a redeemer. And as a redeemer, Jesus changes hearts. And Jesus redeemed us by dying on the cross, thus reversing the curse of the fall that tainted the Sabbath. Just as God finishes work of creation and rested, Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished when he died on the cross. And now he is resting by sitting down on the right hand of God. And just as God, after the sixth day, he saw no more need to create anything else. He just said it was good. We can look at what Jesus did on the cross and we can say that was good. We don't need to add anything to Jesus' work on the cross. And just as God enjoyed and delighted in his creation, we can enjoy and delight in Jesus' work. 
Jesus changes our hearts because Jesus addresses the core issue. How does he address the core issue? Ultimately, underneath all of our workaholism, our stress, our futility, our inadequacy, our anxiety, under all of that is this desire to work our way to God. That's the core issue under everything. That's what drives everybody, to work our way to God. That, but, and that's the main issue in our hearts. We might not realize it, even, even but non-Christians even, even atheists, what they're trying to do all the time, what drives them is to work their way to God. They might not call it God. They might call it something else. But they're looking for somebody or something who, who will love them in, unconditionally, who will accept them, who will strengthen them, who will comfort them, who will be there for them. Right? That's what everybody's looking for. That's God. And all of our work, all of our discontentment is out of that desire. And that's the core issue. And that's the core issue that Jesus solves when he died on the cross. We work so hard to manipulate situations, to get those desires of, you know, of, of finding that somebody, something, to become a reality. But that work just kills us. But what Jesus does is he gives us access to God and he does it for free without work. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The nature of sin is that it is work. How do you know it's work? Because there's a wage. You do something and you get something. You're working for a wage all the time. When you, the, the way sin works, the way all of these dis, discontent and dissatisfaction, the way it works is you're constantly working and working and working. And what's your wage? It's death. You're killing yourself. But the nature of Jesus is that it is free. It's not a wage. It's free. You don't have to work. It's a free gift of life. Jesus says you don't have to work. I've done the work. All you need to do is receive. All you need to do is rest. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that burden you are carrying, that stress or that inadequacy you have, that, that inner voice inside of you that always says, you got to be better, you got to be better. Give all of that to Jesus. Give all of that to Jesus, and in return, he will give you eternal rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much that Jesus is our rest. That we don't have to work so hard to, we don't have to toil and sweat to try to get you, try to reach you, but you have reached down to us. And you have provided us a way to salvation. And God, so many of us were stuck addressing these peripheral issues. And you have addressed the main issue. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to help us connect this main issue to the rest of our lives. Help us to understand what it means, really, that Jesus died on the cross. Yes, our sins are forgiven. You know, our, our sins are washed away. We know all those things. But God, they can seem so theoretical. Theoretical. I pray that you would help us to understand what it means that Jesus died on the cross, and how that, and what it means that that affects the way we work and rest. God, I just pray that this year, 2015, would be a year of rest. Not a, not a year of laziness or idleness, where we waste it all away but a year where we can be fully satisfied, fully delighted, fully content in the work that you have done for us. And we can say that is enough. We don't have to keep striving. We don't have to keep toiling. We can rest.
Thank you, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen.